0: There's no doubt at all to any that look at the Apostle Paul's life from a distance that he was a man who possessed great power. If you just look at his track record and you look at his resume and his accomplishments, uh, it really pretty much speaks for itself to realize that he was a man that was very much filled with the Holy Spirit of God and that he was mightily used by him from a distance. But for those that were a little bit closer to his life and that observed him in person and that listened to him speak in his audience or that lived alongside of him, to them he was much more of an anomaly. The reason for that is because although he possessed a great power that was undeniable even in his day and age. It was different than the world's idea of power, or maybe even what you and I would think in our minds when we uh, think of someone who has power. The power that the Apostle Paul had was not an excellency of speech, for he himself tells us that he didn't speak well uh, when he did speak. It wasn't a power of intellect, even though he's been touted in the present day as one of the greatest minds that have ever lived upon upon the face of the planet. But he wouldn't say that about himself, and he would say, you guys can even say of me that you didn't see that within my life. It certainly wasn't a power of presence because he would say to this very group of people, the Corinthians, that he was among them in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And so there was nothing impressive about being near Paul's person It certainly wasn't his energy level that had a magnetism to it that drew people to himself. And it certainly wasn't an electric or electrifying personality. And so none of the things that really define power in the uh, context of the world that we live in today or what we would speak of humanly or in human terms, none of those things defined the power that the Apostle Paul had of himself. And yet... When you look at his ministry, you recognize that his ministry yielded great results that made little sense. And even the Corinthians were puzzled because they knew it. They knew that Paul was was used of God. They were the testimony of it. But somewhere in the interim between when Paul left Corinth and when these letters began to arrive uh, from where he was then in Ephesus, some among them began to question. Well, is Paul really called of God? Is his ministry really legitimate? We've heard some other people since Paul was here. We've spent some time with Apollos. And Apollos certainly is the dynamic man, the one who possesses a different type of power. Many in Corinth were fans of Peter, who somehow had had an in with the Corinthians. And after a while, people began to say, well, maybe Paul isn't as impressive after all. And they even called to question, is he the real deal? Is Paul authentic in his ministry or in his calling or in his Christianity at all? And that was the attitude of some of the Corinthians towards this man who had labored among them for a year and a half and established their church. This past Tuesday morning, we were at the Duchess County um, Prayer breakfast, and what a phenomenal event. Um, I, I don't think that any of us uh, really kind of can comprehend how rare it is to be in New York State and to be um, th- that our county leaders would host an event like that. And to just sit there and take it in and to realize, um, I don't think we know fully the benefits that we enjoy uh, having some of the leadership that we do in Dutchess County um, that we do and the benefits associated with that. But we certainly do. But um, one of the speakers that was there, in fact, it was the keynote speaker, uh, Julianne Viani, who comes to this church. She talked about her um, testimony and how God has used her uh, in the avenue of women's basketball uh, throughout her her high school and then her college years and now even to the present day, not on the court, but now um, in in a commentator's uh, role or a reporter's role. One of the things that she talked about, the challenges of being a Christian in that environment growing up and growing through those years, she said this quote and it struck me. She said that if you are a person who wears your faith in an outward place where people can see it, then those that can see it are going to put it to the test to see if it's authentic or real. And she's absolutely right in what she said, speaking from experience, but I think all of us, we've all experienced that in our own lives, that if we put our faith out for people to see it, then they're going to want to look into our lives and see evidence when they look at our lives to see that our faith is in fact real. And so as these Corinthians are now looking at Paul and asking that very question, is he real? Is his faith authentic? He's writing in the second letter to the Corinthians and holding up his example to them and reminding them of the way that he was among them, that they might realize that, yes, in fact, he was the real deal. And so in our last segment, I pointed out to you five characteristics of his faith that cannot be faked, things that cannot be counterfeited. They're proof that he was real, that he gave thanks in the midst of his difficulty, that he was a man who is continually victorious, that his life was the aroma of Christ unto God, unto the saved and also to the lost. That he was a man who was vulnerable and and he had sincerity in the presence of all that would observe and that there was undeniable fruit in his life that didn't need any outside advertising. And so as he now writes to them, carrying on from that point, he is um, answering the question, what exactly is the real deal? Or what is an authentic Christian. And so calling to mind for them the power that he had demonstrated, and now in the Spirit's intention of all of this, it raises for us two more questions. As we think about the power that Paul had and that that God seeks for each one of us in our lives, the questions that remain are number one, why is this power lacking in so many professed Christians, number one, And number two, what is the secret or the source of that power if it's something that God has called each one of us to possess and also to enjoy? Now, there's no doubt at all that that everyone who is a, a sincere Christian person wants to possess the power of God within their life in the fullest possible expression, that we want to be authentic Christians. And so there's many that want it, and there's many that are trying to have it, but seem to always be coming up short. And so in this segment, as we pick up in verse 5 and move through chapter 4, verse 7, the Apostle Paul is going to give to us one of the greatest treasures that exist in all the Bible, and that is the source or the way in which every one of us can walk in the fullness of what God has for us. And so what we have before us here is we have two covenants that will be contrasted And then we have two people that will be contrasted and then we'll have two outcomes that will be contrasted. And hopefully we're able to see our lives clearly through the lens of the things that are here. And so we begin with two covenants as we pick up in verse five. And the Apostle Paul here gives us the answer to the second question of what is the secret or the source of God's power in our lives. And he says this, he says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Now, um, the word sufficient, which keeps coming up within 2 Corinthians, is a word that literally means uh, um, uh, to equip with power adequate to perform. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying that, not that it's not that we have uh, the ability to equip ourselves with power to make us what we're called to be, um, but, or to think that anything is of ourselves, but our power or our equipping or our ability to perform, that that comes from God. And so Paul answers the question, the source of power in the Christian life is completely from God and not at all from us. And that's so important that we recognize that that the part that we play in producing an authentic Christian model for someone else to look at comes nothing from us at all, and it comes completely and totally from God. He says we're not sufficient to think that anything comes from ourselves or even to think that anything is of ourselves. It is completely and totally 100% from God. And that's, that's important. I hope you hold on to that as we move through this study because it's easy to lose it and to think all of a sudden that it doesn't just come from God, that somehow it has to come from me as well. And once you do that, you begin to fall into that category of, I wish I possessed and I can't figure out why I'm not. And so how do we? Paul goes on and he brings us the first contrast in verse six, and that is the contrast of two covenants. He says, who, and that who is directly related to God from the last verse, also has made us able, and that word able is the same word that he used for sufficient. So he has made us to have power adequate to perform, ministers or servants of the New Testament or the New Covenant, not of the letter, that would be speaking of the Old Covenant or the law, but of the spirit for the letter that is the old covenant killeth, but the spirit gives life. And so now he gives to us this uh, um, contrast in this very beginning. And he says that in this new covenant, it is God that supplies for us the power that we need because that power comes from his spirit and it does not come from the letter or from the old covenant or from the law, that which we have been called out of. We have been made servants, and that servants is a positional thing, that we're no longer servants of the old covenant, but now we're servants of the new covenant, and that's where we stand before him, and it's not of the letter, but of the Spirit, because the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so what are these two covenants that the Apostle Paul is holding up before us here in contrast? The first one is the old covenant. And a covenant in the biblical context is nothing more than the terms through which God has a relationship with his people. Or if you want to make it even more generic than that, it's the terms in which any two parties have an agreement or any type of relational contract with one another. That's That's a covenant. And so when we're talking about the old covenant or the new covenant in terms of the Bible, we're talking about the terms of the relationship through which God is going to work in a relationship with a person, with you and I. And there are two of those in the Bible. There's the Old Covenant, or the Old Testament, and then there is the New Testament, or the New Covenant. Now, the Old Covenant was called the Law. It was given on Mount Sinai. The story is recorded in Exodus chapter 20. The mediator of that covenant was none other than Moses, who had drawn the people out of Egypt, led by God and through the Red Sea. God spoke from Mount Sinai and he gave his commands and then he dictated to Moses the rest of the terms of that covenant. It was then sealed in the blood of a lamb, declared to the people who then entered into covenant with God through that uh, testament and, and the relationship was then established. Now, the conditions of the Old Covenant or this Old Testament were that righteousness and blessing were contingent upon my ability or my sufficiency to keep my side of the covenant. And so under the Old Covenant, man had a very great part to play in in maintaining or in um, keeping the fire of that relationship burning hot or in the place that it was supposed to be. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 24, uh the, the the Moses who's reiterating the terms of the covenant, he says this. He says, "And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that, and there's the condition, he might preserve us alive as it is this day." So In our doing and keeping of the statutes, then he'll preserve us alive. And it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Just one chapter later in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 11, the terms expanded or uh, um, uh, reminded again. Moses writes by the Spirit of God, and he says, you shall therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command you this day to do them. Wherefore, it shall come to pass if, and that's conditional, isn't it? You hearken to these judgments and keep and do them that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy, so mercy is contingent on something, which he swear unto your fathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. And he will bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your corn, your wine, your oil, your uh, uh, your kind, which is your cattle and your flocks of sheep. In the land which he swore unto your fathers to give you, you shall be blessed above all people. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your cattle, but again, it's conditioned upon the people's ability to obey and keep the law that God was giving to them. Just a little bit further through in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13. Notice again, it says that it shall come to pass, if you will hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. That I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain that you may gather in your corn and your wine and your oil. And I will send grass in your fields for your cattle that you may eat and be full, but take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you and he close up the heaven that there be no rain and that the land yield not her fruit unless you perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord gives you. So again, a conditional blessing, a conditional promise that hangs upon the people's ability to keep their end of the deal. If they obey, then they will prosper. But if they disobey or fail in keeping the commands, then God says, I will also withdraw my hand of blessing that's from among you. And so the righteousness and the blessing that came through this covenant was conditioned upon man's ability to be sufficient and to keep it. And so it was dependent upon obedience and thus it was dependent upon self. And so the demands of living in that relationship with God under the old covenant meant that you had to put forth a lot of effort And you had to have a lot of energy and it demanded absolute perfection. In Leviticus chapter 18 verse 5, which is the verse that the Apostle Paul uses in Galatians chapter 3 verse 12 in order to uh, prove the severity of the law, God says this. He says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them for I am the Lord. Meaning that if you want to live before the Lord according to the terms of the old covenant, then not only must you agree to God's standards, but you must live in them. And it's a lifelong binding commitment that demands absolute perfection. And those are the terms of relating to God under the old covenant of the law. Now, what does it produce in a life when a person decides that they want to live before God in that way? God, I'm going to please you. By, by putting everything I can into keeping your laws, your decrees, your statutes, and your commands. What does that produce within a life? Well, the first thing that that produces is it produces a great deal of self-awareness. Because all of a sudden, I become very introspective and very self-assessing about what I'm doing or how I'm doing. And I become very aware of myself. And there's a constant self-analysis that's going on. That's quickly followed by a spiritual fatigue because it's a very difficult job to keep up all the time governing all of my actions, all of my thoughts, everything I am and everything I do, every word I say and holding it up against the lens of God's word and making sure that I'm consistently obedient to it and it becomes extremely fatiguing. And it doesn't take long after that because we are a fallen creation, a sinful people, to realize that I'm a failure and that I'm not able to keep the laws and the commands that God has laid out and that he demands for me to do. And so fatigue is followed by failure, which then is followed by frustration. I become frustrated with myself. I become frustrated at the law. I become frustrated with the world that makes it very difficult to keep the laws and the commands of God. And that frustration is then naturally followed by a distance that's created between me and God, because I know that I'm not right with him, and I know I'm not keeping things the way that I ought, and that even on the days that I'm doing pretty good, somewhere in the back of my mind, there's this gnawing understanding that I'm not doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing, and I'm not doing it as well as I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm not sure if I even know everything that I'm supposed to be doing. And so it's better that I keep a little bit of a distance between me and God, just in case he might get a little bit angry at me. I don't want him to see me when he's looking out over the front few rows. And over time of distance between me and the God whom I'm called to love with all my heart, mind and strength and to serve with all my my, my whole life. And I realize that I'm not able to please him then the natural thing that's going to follow that is there's going to be some resentment in my heart. I'm going to be a little bit resentful towards God because I'm not experiencing the blessing that I'm expecting to experience. I'm not experiencing his nearness in the way that I would like to or that I think that I should or that his word talks about that I can. Resentment is almost always followed by rebellion. The law produces rebellion because eventually I become so tired and so unable, and so uh, uh, um, just not not able to keep the law of God, that that once I slip, I'm too tired to try to keep bringing myself back, and I slowly, behind the scenes, slip into a lifestyle, or into things that I'm not supposed to be in, and and the result of all of that is ultimately death, now Paul skipped all of those stages, and he went right to death, he said that the letter brings death, and it always does and any person that seeks to live before the lord or to have a right relationship with god based upon keeping the terms of the old covenant will ultimately find themselves spiritually dead and some someday they'll find themselves eternally dead because that's all the law can ever produce within a life notice that the apostle paul in that verse that he calls this covenant the letter that he gives it that nickname No other place in the Bible is the law uh, given that kind of a nickname. But Paul gives it that nickname here. And he calls it the letter. And the reason why he calls it the letter written on stone tables is because the the most that that covenant can do for you and I is it can work from the outside in as I read it and seek to conform my life to the things that I can see. And that's the best that that covenant can never do for me is that it can work from the outside in, but it can never go deep enough because it can't get to the very core of who I am. Now, the other covenant that the Apostle Paul mentions there in verse six is the new covenant, the new covenant that is after the spirit. Now, I wanna say this here, that the, the, the reason that there is a new covenant is not because God failed the first time and he said, we gotta scrap this plan and come up with something altogether different, because this whole old uh, covenant thing isn't working out, and, and they're just not working, so we got to try something else, no, 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 it was always God's intent all along that it would be a new covenant, that there would be a new covenant, that, that everything would ultimately end up in that place, but the old covenant was essential, we'll talk about why in just a minute. But the new covenant uh, was mentioned first by the prophet Jeremiah in the, in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah in chapter um, 31 and in verse 31. You can just remember that because it's 31, 31, two uh, numbers repeating there. Notice what, what God speaks through Jeremiah by the Spirit. He says, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, I was faithful, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no man, every man his neighbor, no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them, unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That the days are going to come, God says, that I'm going to, eclipse the old covenant with a new covenant that will not be established in the writing of commands that they can read and then practice to obey, but rather it will be by the indwelling of my spirit within their hearts and my law will be written there and power will be provided through the forgiveness of their sins that I will be their God and they will be my people foreshadowed, mentioned long before it would come. Now the New Testament, because it was instituted through the cross of Christ, couldn't come until the sacrifice of Jesus was made. And thus the covenant, the new covenant, that's also called grace, was instituted on the night that Jesus was betrayed at the communion table. It says that he took the cup and he said, this cup represents the New Testament or the new covenant that's in my blood which is shed for you. And then he handed that cup to his disciples and he said, I want you to drink it, internalize it, because the terms of this covenant are not something that works from the outside, it's something that works from the inside. And so through his finished work upon the cross and then through the gospel being established wherein my sin was judged upon Jesus Christ, and his righteousness that he earned by living a perfect life is now transferred to the coming sinner that receives that gift by faith, that person enters into a relationship with God that's based upon the new covenant. Not the keeping of laws, not the performing of the duties and of the ordinances and of the things that God demands and commands according to the old covenant but according completely to the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, that he did the work. It's dependent upon his obedience, upon his ability to live and perform and keep a perfect life according to the law, which he did. And those are the terms of the New Testament, of the new covenant, that he did the work completely. And thus, righteousness and blessing for the coming sinner, that's you and me, is not conditioned on our ability to keep his commands, but it's conditioned upon his ability to live a perfect life, which he did. His ability to endure the cross, the judgment for our sin, which he did. And now his ability to keep his promise that he will draw us and keep us close to him by faith, which he does. And so it's completely a covenant that is dependent upon our faith, believing what he says, and then his keeping power, and what that means is the absence of self. There is no self-effort or energy expended in our relationship with God according to the terms of the new covenant. He has made us able or sufficient to be servants of the new covenants, not of the letter because the letter kills, but of the spirit because the spirit gives life. And so what the new covenant demands Of the believer in the New Testament is that I come to him by faith, is that I enter into covenant with him by confessing myself as a sinner, as him as the Savior, and then by making him the Lord of my life. And as I receive him as Lord, his Spirit comes inside of my life, my sin is removed and placed upon the cross. In the life of Christ, the righteousness of Christ and the power of Jesus Christ is now placed within my life and he becomes my Lord. And I'm relating to God according to the terms of the new covenant. Well, what does that produce in my life? It produces, first of all, not a self-assessment or self-awareness, but rather it it produces a self-transposition. You say, what in the world is a transposition? Trans just means change and position means where you're standing. And so it means that there's a self-change. And here's what that change is. I go from being self-ish to now being self-crucified. Jesus says, if any man will come after me, let him take up his cross and die. And so I look at everything I am, all of my effort, all that I could be, all that I ever will be, and I say, Lord, I'm agreeing with you that that is completely condemned, that there's no good thing that's in me. And so nail me to the cross. And now, Jesus, you live in me. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. And so self is transpositioned from being the center of my world to now being dead and nailed to the cross with him. It also produces in me a rest. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, he said, if anyone labor, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. And so for the person who became fatigued under the pressure of trying to be good enough under the, the demands of the law, in coming to Christ, you find that his righteousness is sufficient to remove all of my guilt and thus in him I can rest and stand complete that I'm in Jesus Christ and that my righteousness stands upon him and not upon myself. It also produces intimacy. Whereas the law produced distance and separation. Under the new covenant, I can now be intimate with God. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, being justified by faith, that's the new covenant, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That no longer am I an enemy of God, No longer is there distance between me and God, but through Christ I am brought near and I can experience his presence and his favor and his grace within my life because of Jesus and not because of myself. It also produces in my life transformation. There's a big difference between confirmation and transformation. The best the law could ever do for anyone was bring them into conformity with what God would want behaviorally could never change the person on the inside. Eventually, what was on the inside would always work its way back out. That's why there would be rebellion and death in the end. But transformation is something totally different. Transformation is a change that takes place in the deepest part of the life that changes me from what I once was to what He is now creating me to be in Him. And the power of the new covenant and that the Spirit of God is now alive and at work within my life is that I'm no longer a slave to what I once was, but his spirit within me is working a change and making me like the person who's living inside of me, like Jesus. And so there's a transformation of life and power, which is what also comes with this new covenant life. Power is imparted to me so that now I can live the life that God wants me to live because the power doesn't come from myself. And so there's power for obedience, which is exactly what sufficiency means when Paul says he makes us sufficient or able. And the result of all of this is that we experience true life, which is the opposite of death. Paul says the spirit gives life. And thus, as we relate to God under the terms of the new covenant, we have life in Jesus Christ. Notice also in verse 6 that he calls this new covenant the Spirit. He says, not according to the letter, but according to the Spirit, or the covenant of the Spirit. Why does he call it the Spirit here? Nowhere else is it called that, but Paul calls it that here. Here's why. Because unlike the letter that works only from the outside, the Spirit only works from within. The Spirit never bids us to conform our behavior to be something that we're not. But the spirit moves inside and makes us something that we are not and that we cannot be. And thus, under the new covenant, our relationship with God starts in the deepest place of who we are, and it works its way outward in our life, and it only translates into victory and success and blessing and makes us sufficient unto that for which God has called us. And so he lays this contrast out between the old covenant, the letter, and and the new covenant under the spirit there in verse six. Now he draws the contrast a little bit deeper as we move on into verse seven. He says, but if the ministration, and that you could just you know, write the word ministry close by, if the ministry of death, that is the law, that was written and engraven in stones was glorious, and it was glorious when the law was given, I mean, God's voice thundered from heaven. You can imagine that there was some glory in that. Truth was given to mankind. A moral code was written that would tell man how to live. And light was given to him. that This is how you're to treat one another. And this is how you're to act uh, in the world and in society. And this is how marriage works. And this is how family works. And this is what doesn't work. And when man heard the law, even to this day, when we hear the law, there's something that resonates inside and we say, yes, that is right. And there's a glory in it. He said that even the ministry of death was glorious insomuch that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, And speaking of the second time that Moses went up the mountain to receive the tables of the law, we're told in Exodus 34, a a, a segment that we'll look at in just a moment, that when Moses came down the mountain, that his face was shining so brightly that the children of Israel couldn't look at it because he was in the presence of God in the whole thing. But it says that that glory was to be done away. So the, the old covenant was glorious In so much that Moses' face was shining, but that glory was going to be done away. Why? Because in verse 8 he says, how shall not the ministry of the Spirit be rather glorious or exceedingly glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation be glory, that's the old, then much more does the ministry of righteousness, that's the Spirit, the New Testament, exceeding glory. For even that which was made glorious, that's the old, had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excels. That's the new covenant. That is, that the glory of the new covenant will be so great that it will eclipse the glory of the old covenant and make it completely obsolete. For if that which is done away, the old covenant, was glorious, then much more that which remains is... Gloria, glorious. So the fading glory is outshined by the lasting glory. Now, if you just go through those verses and you take the adjectives that describe the two covenants, you'll see that the old covenant is described as that which kills, brings death, is done away, brings condemnation, has no more glory, and will be done away. If you circle all the adjectives associated with the new, you'll see that they are life, exceeding glory, righteousness, glory that excels in glory that remains. And thus Paul says, the result of this within our lives, in verse 11 or verse 12, he says, seeing then that we have such hope, that the position of our lives is not under the demands of the old, but under the grace and glory of the new. He says, seeing that we have that hope, that we use then great plainness or great boldness of speech the word literally means freedom unreservedness in speech without concealment free and fearless confidence paul says we have the ability to be free and open and vulnerable because we know that our sufficiency stands completely in that which what he does and not at all in what we do and so paul gives the contrast of two covenants the old covenant and the new covenant Then he goes on and he gives us the contrast between two people, Moses and Jesus Christ. And notice that the effect, what the effect is of those covenants upon those people. And this is where it begins to get a little bit closer to home in terms of how it relates to the Christian in the New Testament context. Notice what he says in verse 13. He says, and not as Moses. So the and not as Moses relates to the plainness of speech or the, um, the, you know, the simplicity or the sincerity or the authenticity of speech that he spoke of in verse 12. He says, and not as Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which was abolished but their minds were blinded for until this day remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. Now this is the second mention in this passage of the episode where Moses face was glowing when he came down the mountain. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 29, we have the account. I want to just read it to you uh, so that you can understand exactly what took place when Moses came down from the mountain. It says, but when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off. Oh, wait, no, it's actually starting in verse uh, 29. Yeah, that's, that's what you have too, isn't it? It says that it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not or knew not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with them. Now notice that mark it, that he didn't even know that this light was emanating from him. It was a reflected light, not radiated. It didn't come from within. It wasn't his. It came from God. It says, And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And when he came out, he spoke to the children of Israel, that which was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses that the skin of Moses' face shone. And Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him. And so Moses comes out, he recognizes that the people are afraid because his face is shining. And so he puts a veil over his face in a show of respect for their feelings that they wouldn't be stumbled by the fact that he was glowing so or hurt by the fact that the the vision was so bright. That's what we get from the account here in Exodus. It's simply a veil to cover the shining light to help them to be in his presence. But Paul tells us here in the New Testament book something about that incident that isn't mentioned back in Exodus. Notice what he says. He says in verse 13, he says that Moses put a veil on his face, and here's the reason, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which was abolished. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that Moses would come out of the presence of God glowing with reflected light. But that as he would spend time out of God's presence, that glow would fade. Symbolic of the fading of the covenant, that that covenant wouldn't last. But in Moses' mind, he didn't want the children of Israel to know that the glory of his his countenance was fading. And thus, he put the veil over his face to hide the fact that the glow wasn't fading. The glow wasn't his own. It came from God. But he didn't want them to know that the glow was fading, and thus he put the veil over his face. He he made a choice to put a veil. Now, here's, here's where it's going. Listen. Instead of the plainness, instead of vulnerability, Instead of the sincerity, instead of the openness and honesty of letting the people understand and know what the source of the light was, he wanted the people to think that he was more than what he was, or that he had a source of something that, that, that really he didn't have. Instead of dispelling their fear and saying to them, hey, listen, listen, I know my face is radiating right now, but understand, I just came out of the presence of God you can go into the tabernacle and be in the presence of God. This is something that's available to all. It's not mine. This is a reflected glory. It's not mine. It's not, he didn't do that. Instead, he put a veil on his face and what it was for Moses is it was a show of false humility and it was a show of hiding the truth that the glory was fading uh, in his life. Now, what this does and what this did is that it, is it produced two very damaging problems to those that would see Moses and see that light in that day. Number one is that it would set the children of Israel on a vain pursuit of thinking that they could attain something that they could not attain. And the reason they couldn't attain it is because even Moses didn't attain it. It wasn't his glory. It wasn't his light. It came from God. It was God's light. It was God's glory. But he was inferring by putting on that mask by putting on that veil that day and letting them think that he had light that they didn't have, that if they were as holy as he was or if, as privileged as he was or if they could do what he did, then they could have what they had, but they can't. And so I'm going to put a veil over my face so as not to stumble you. Even worse than that, and here's the second problem that that veil produced and produces to those that wear veils even to this day, is that by putting on that veil, Moses put himself forward as though he himself was something that he was not. So the first one had to do with the people's perception of him. The second thing was the standard that he was placing upon himself that he would have to live up to. That he set himself on a pedestal in the minds of the people that he was more spiritual than he actually was. And that's a very easy thing to enjoy, but it's a very difficult thing to maintain. For someone to enjoy it When someone looks and says, wow, you're so spiritual, is very easy. But then to try to maintain that reputation and to maintain that uh, 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 pedestal that they've put you on, that becomes extremely difficult. You've ever heard the story of James Cook, the explorer? And when he discovered the Hawaiian Islands, the story goes, that him and his crew came onto an island, and when they showed up, the people of that island, the citizens there, believed that they were gods and that James Cook, that he was the high god amongst those that had come among them there. And so they began to worship them, and the crew said, these people are thinking that we're gods. We need to explain to them who we are. And James Cook said, no, 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 no. We can use this. We'll use this to our advantage. Let's just run with it for a little while. And so James Cook set himself forward that he was a god in the midst of these people that were the um, inhabitants of that island or of that land. And so he would allow them to bring the best of their foods and to give them the best of their gifts. He would take their wives and he was soon very lifted up and elevated in this position that he had allowed himself to carry upon himself. But one day while he was doing something, he stumbled and he tripped and when his knee hit a rock, he cried out and blood began to flow down from his knee. And immediately one of the natives that saw him there grabbed him by the neck, looked at him and said, gods don't cry and gods don't bleed and killed him on the spot. Because it was eventually it was exposed to all who and what he actually was. And that's always gonna be the case. And anyone who puts a veil on under the guise of wanting people to think that they're more spiritual than they actually are. It's an easy thing to enjoy, but it's a very difficult thing to, uh, to maintain. And the implication that Moses was allowing the people to have is that, hey, by putting on this veil, he was saying to the people, hey, there's some serious spiritual things going on in here that are way too heavy for you. And I'm just going to put this veil here for just a minute so that you're not stumbled by it. it. And uh, I mean, if you were as spiritual as me, maybe you could. But, you know, but at the end of the day, it was hypocrisy because the glory wasn't his and he knew it. Now, in the modern day, there are still people, there are still Christians that put veils on their face. They still cover up what they really are in the whole thing. And I've been around them and I've worn them. I know what a veil closet is in Christians. Some veils I call the light screen veils. And the light screen is when someone really does have some fire going in their life. You know, they're just on the mountaintop. Maybe they just came back from a retreat and, and there's just something going there. And they put on kind of the false humility light screen and this whole thing, but they put on like this this thing like they've got something so special going on with God and that you'll never be able to be a part of it. They're so super spiritual in their visions and their dreams and uh, you know, God's speaking to them, and you're like, God's speaking to you and you know, and this whole thing, and, and inside you're going, I will never have what they have. You know, they just got this thing, it just seems like, man, I wish I had that. The other type of veil that people wear, I call it the lampshade. And the, the, the light screen is when there really is some light and you're just kind of screening, but you want to let a few rays out just to let it be known. But the lampshade is when there's absolutely no light at all. But you put on this spiritual veil and, and there's no light coming out at all. And it's kind of this false humility. There's no light and they appear very humble. And they kind of put on this aura in, in your presence like, well, if I were to lift away this veil at all, the glory would be so great that you would just be floored. And so I'm just going to keep this thing on No life, nothing at all. But here's the truth about anybody who wears veils, Christian uh, coverings, is that they are aware of their own fading glory and that they are trapped in a tiring cycle of stirring up again some spiritual source or power and then trying to maintain it and then watching it fade and then trying to stir it up again. And that becomes an extremely tiring and frustrating uh, Christian experience. Experience And what that is, is it is nothing more than a New Testament believer seeking to relate to God under some skewed terms of the old covenant or the old relationship. Now, what's the fruit of a a New Testament Christian that tries to live their relationship with God according to the do's and don'ts or the keeping of commands and ordinances? The first thing that it produces always is it produces a roller coaster Christianity where today I'm up and I'm in the favor of God and God loves me and I feel saved and I feel good and I feel like I can pray and I feel like things are are gonna be okay in my life and all's good, but then that is soon followed by the lowest of lows where I don't know where God is. I can't feel his presence. I wouldn't dare open my mouth before Him in prayer because he'll probably strike me with lightning if I do. It it, it seems like there's no plan for my life. There's nothing good. It's just a series of ups and downs, bright and fade, you know, uh, um, The whole thing. The second thing that comes from a Christian that lives before God under the standards of the old covenant is that all the fruit of the law is evident in their life. They're very self-aware. They're very self-assessing. They're very fatigued. They're constantly failing. There's frustration underneath the surface. There's distance between themselves and God. There's resentment and, and then usually rebellion and there's a spiritual death that they will die because they're living according to the law even though they're under the terms of grace. Another result of a person who lives that way is that they become very judgmental people because they're always comparing themselves and how they're doing in the things of God with other people and how they are doing in the things of God. And so they're, they're establishing constantly a pecking order spiritually and think, well, I'm more spiritual than they are. I read more than they do. I pray more than they do. I serve with more intensity than they do. I, I'm, I'm spiritually closer to God or I have more power. My gifts are greater than them. And there's just this thing that's being done and there's a, a immediately a wall that's constructed between that person and every other believer because they're, they're, they're comparing themselves among themselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says that they that compare themselves among themselves are not wise. And Those are some ingenious words. Another fruit of that kind of life is that it is just a very unstable and tiring Christian experience. And sadly, there are many Christians that live before the Lord with that kind of a relationship with God. It's completely based upon their efforts and how they're doing is dependent somehow on them. And the result, no power, none. Because you can't live before the Lord according to both. That's Moses. And there are many Moses, even in our churches today, that are seeking to have a legalistic, rules and regulations-based relationship with God. And it's death. It doesn't work. It's not the way that God intended it to be. Now, the other side of that contrast is the person of Christ. Notice what Paul goes on to say. He says in verse 16, he says, nevertheless, when it, that is the veil or that person shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. In verse 14, it says that that veil is done away in Christ. The other person in this contrast is not Moses, but it's Jesus Christ himself. And whereas with Moses, the light that he had was a reflected light from without, the light that Jesus had was a light that radiated from within. You recall what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. He took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, and it says that he was transfigured before them. And everything that he was on the inside was immediately exposed to so that it could be seen by everyone on the outside. and What was it? It was a light that was so bright that it radiated like the noonday sun and the apostles that were there with him couldn't stand to look at it for the brightness of it. It wasn't a fading glory in his face. It was a radiating glory from within because he is the source of true light. In John's gospel, chapter one, John testifying of Jesus Christ, he says this. He says that all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. And there was a man who was sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light. That's called openness. That's called sincerity, vulnerability. But was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light, which lights every man. Do you see that? Where does the light come from? It comes from Jesus. He's the light that lights every man that comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That is, all those that are born again in Christ are brought into the light. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried saying this was he of whom I spake he that comes after me is preferred before me for he was before me and of his fullness have all we received and listen and grace for grace for the law was given by Moses but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ the law can never produce light in a life. It can produce radiated light in certain seasons and times, but it's always going to be a fading glory that cannot last and that ultimately produces death. But when a person comes to Christ and they're found in Him and they live before Him according to the New Covenant, completely upon the New Covenant that person's light comes from within because when Jesus comes in the light of Jesus comes in and thus the light that then comes out is not a fake light and it's not a veiled light it's an open light that's exposed and it's radiated before all so how does a believed a veiled believer remove the veil first of all by absolute openness before God notice in verse 17 It says now the lord is that spirit and where the spirit of the lord is there is liberty but we all With open face that means no veil no more hiding No more trying to shadow who I am No more trying to wear a christian facade and make people think i'm more spiritual than I am No more trying to accelerate my spirituality by buying righteousness on credit thinking that I'm something more than what I am, but complete vulnerability before God and before men. Open face. Beholding, that is my eyes are set as though I was looking in a mirror. That's what a glass is. The glory of the Lord. That is the glory of this new covenant. It says that we are changed, transfigured, transformed, metamorphosized from what we were to what we're going to be into The same image from glory to glory. Now, before you think that, you know, that means glory to glory, that there's levels in this whole thing. No, no, no. It's It's the contrast. He moves us from the glory of the old covenant, which was glorious, but it's fading, to the glory of the new covenant, which is radiating and lasting. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so how does a powerless Christian come into an experience where they're really experiencing the true power of God? They forsake the old covenant completely, which means that they completely forsake all manner of self-reliance in producing something good for God. And in place of that, they give themselves completely to the new covenant relationship. I am completely his and he is the Lord of my life, and I am trusting him to be in me what I can never produce in myself. And that's the first part. Then I, secondly, remove every veil. I take away every part of that old covenant aroma that's left in my life, and I am free to be who I am in Jesus Christ. And the result of that is that as I look at him, I am changed into the same image by his spirit that works in me. Next week, as we pick up, we're a little behind, but we'll we'll pick it up next week as we break into chapter four. We'll look at the results of this. What does this allow for me? What privileges and freedom does it afford me to live this way? God would bid each one of us here to accept who we are in Jesus Christ tonight. This isn't mean that, you know, this isn't like a a cheer rally for self-esteem. It's completely the opposite. Nail self to the cross. Recognize the value that God places in who you are and where you are right now and embrace that and be what he's made you. If God wanted two of someone else and none of you, he could have done that. But he made you who you are and he knows where you are in your walk with him tonight. And you are free in the new covenant to be just that and just there. And that's where power begins in the Christian life. Both power to live it and then power to be used in it. And may God grant it to us. Amen? Father, we thank you tonight as we look at this uh, somewhat technical passage, but that reveals so much of the secret of powerful living. And so we ask you, Lord, that as we sit here tonight, Lord, many of us in different places, we would ask that we would possess the fullness of what this represents. And so, Lord, where there's veils over our faces, or, Lord, where there's weakness and defeat, Or where there's in us that constant looming sense that you're displeased. Tonight, Lord, each of us want to make a fresh profession of faith in you that we no longer live according to the standards of the old, but we desire the fullness of the new. So would you please tonight, O God, translate us from what that old covenant brings and that you would move us into the fullness of glory that we're privileged and enabled to experience through the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away all of our sin. So tonight, Lord, at the foot of your cross, we lay down our veils. We lay down, Lord, our hypocrisy. We lay down what we are not. And we lay down what we are. And we ask that the fullness of our lives would be defined by Christ in us, the hope of glory. So would you do it in us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.